VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a podcast from The Times, sports newspaper of the year. Welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I'm here with 40 minutes of football debate that I promise will never cross the line. Joining me today, Rory K. Smith, Julian Lawrence, and making a special appearance on the podcast, uh, it's Tony Barrett. Later on, we'll be previewing the Champions League semifinals, but uh, first, let's get cracking with a rather controversial weekend at the FA Cup. Right, let's do this in reverse order, Tottenham Hotspur and Chelsea Sunday night. Uh, before we talk Atkinson, can I just get something out of the way regarding DDA Drogba? And I'll ask, uh, I'll start with Julian because uh, Drogba is sort of French. Um, okay, I know he's old, but he's a big body, he's athletic, he can score goals like that. Is it true that you can, in 75 days, you can just go and rock up and put DDA Drogba in your pocket, provided you give him a decent contract? I, can't, I just cannot believe Chelsea will let him go. I cannot believe that they're not clever enough to offer him something that would make him stay at the club again I think yesterday he proved that you know on big games he always delivers that he's a handful for the opposition's defence that he's just a fantastic player that goal was amazing and and I think they would be very stupid to let him go but yeah in 75 days anyone anyone even Leeds United could uh, for, for Rory Smith favourite club could, could buy him and, and it's, it's just ridiculous that he got to that point from Chelsea I think All right, Any dissenters in this DDA Drogba loving perhaps somebody who might want to point out that Chelsea have invested an enormous amount of money in one Fernando Torres who happens to be younger and plays the same position and they can't get rid of for love nor money Yeah I mean I think Julian's absolutely right Drogba's obviously still still capable of playing for a top class club you, you wonder so at some point you do have to make the decision to let, to let the past go and I suppose that might be Chelsea's thinking at the moment that he's what 34 he's on bid money he's still I mean to me Drodbert I see him play quite regularly he's probably top class one once in every three games maybe that's not quite enough now so I, there's maybe a logic there I personally would keep him at the club I've got to admit but if, if, if they're thinking you know we've got to make a decision at some point it might as well be now that said if they do let him go if I was Man City I'd be snapping him up do your job and he's got that winning mentality then he's perfect for City I, 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 I don't understand why you would let Drogba go when there are so many doubts around and Fernando Torres it would be different if you had a Fernando Torres on form and I know Chelsea are going to enter the transfer market in the summer and they'll bring, bring another centre forward in but if if 
Torres continues to misfire. You lose Jogba and you bring another forward in. How do you know the new forward's going to fare well? Surely Jogba should be the man in possession who guides the new man through, and the new man should be taking his shape off Jogba if he's good enough. But the problem with that is that if he's absurd amounts of money in Fernando Torres, and if the guy Torres doesn't play, Torres isn't going to improve, you can't sell him. This is the age of financial fair play, which I actually think is kind of neat. People are at a certain level of accountability, and uh, if we even had more transparency on top of that, I, I think it would actually be be, be sort of fun. Um, uh, Tony, I want to get you on uh, um, well, inevitably that that non-goal um, for those who are asleep and have no idea what we're talking about. Um, Chelsea ended up winning the game five-one, but the big talking point was Chelsea's goal, which made it which made it two-nil. Uh, a shot from Juan Mata, uh, a big cluster mess of players on the line. Um, John Terry and Ledley King seemingly collapsing on top of the poor, prone Carlo Cudicini, who's just a little fella. Um, shot comes in, clearly it gets rebounded back out. Clearly rebounded back out, I think, off of uh, off of John Terry. Um, Martin Atkinson ideally placed. Uh, gives a goal, which I think you could see without the benefit of replay, clearly had not crossed the line. Um, I'm assuming you're not going to argue that it was a goal. Did you have any sympathy for for Atkinson? No, do I? I do have sympathy for Atkinson just because he's one man who's got one angle to see it from and, and I know television showed he had a good angle, but there's human frailties involved. He's, he's given what he thought he saw. He can only ever do that. He's got it wrong. My, my big problem with it all is the, the last time we had a major goal line can solve it at Wembley was 1966 where the Jeff shot crossed the line and, and that occasion Roger Dunn put his arm up and said he crossed the line and Bill Shankly later said that's how you know it was a goal because Roger Hunt would never tell a lie but that was the age of black and white television and yet we're still 2012 we're, we're, we're leaving it to humans to decide whether or not balls cross the line when we could find out in good time and we can find out the right way the, 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 the game kicked off yesterday after after the goal was given and we'd already seen on television replays showing that the ball hadn't crossed the line so there's no excuse replays and, and television coverage wouldn't actually delay the restart of the game it would actually facilitate it and, and would allow us to restart the game in a proper fashion without a team having been robbed of a goal or a, a, a team given a goal that he shouldn't have been When uh, when Ashley Young dived for a penalty yesterday you, you, You're starting to mix different games here I am yeah but you know how there's that big sort of controversy about you know diving's the sort of scourge of modern football how is that morally any different to claiming a goal that didn't go in? Okay, I will answer that question for you before Julian's speaking. But first of all, I want to also point out, by the way, uh, Tony mentioned video replay. I, people, pe- that makes people very uncomfortable. There's no need for video replay. There is goal line technology, which doesn't involve video replay. And uh, um, FIFA will hopefully be trialing, and supposedly is already running secret trials for, uh, I know they've been running secret trials for other types of uh, goal line technology before, so we may get closer to it. Um, uh, regarding the claiming the goal, and I knew that this, this is a thinly veiled attack at uh, the former England captain, Brave John Terry, uh, from the evil Roy Smith. But isn't it the case that all he said, he was on the line, he didn't think it went in, but he's lying uh, like, horizontally on the ground. How's he supposed to be 100% certain that the, whether the ball crossed the line or not? Aren't you being a little bit... All he sees is the, the, the goal's been given. He didn't think it across the line, but he's not the referee. He's not certain. I wouldn't. I mean, I don't think we, we can assume that he's not the referee. The way he behaves on the pitch, it certainly looks like he's the referee. <laughs> yes, he's the referee. He's the England captain. He's a source of all evil. The manager. Yeah, he slept with everybody and say, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, Julien. I mean... It's, it's always the same debate, and yes, you know we need goal line technology. Obviously, it's, it's 
clearer and clearer. I, th- I thought that a referee should give something, whatever it is, only if he, only if he was sure 100% that the ball crossed the line, that the guy was offside or whatever. And if he had a little doubt, they should just not give anything. And there's no way, yes, I mean, I saw him walking out of Wembley yesterday. He looked ashamed of himself. I swear to you, he was like looking on the floor while he walked past through that mix zone. He looked so embarrassed. Just like, obviously, you know, he should have thought in the moment, right, is, am I sure? No, I'm not sure. So let just let the game go. And, and it's a terrible mistake for someone who's going to be a goal line assistant at the Euros. And on Tuesday, like I saw you tweet, Gab, would be one of the fourth or fifth referees, so the, the, the goal line referee at the, at the Bayern Real Madrid game. It's just... This is symbolic, I think. This is the point where if you're a fool, you make the joke and say, like, oh, but the goal line is just so do anything. Whereas if you actually take the time and listen to what UEFA, who always tell the truth, say, you'll find out that actually they act a, a huge role as deterrence and they do communicate with the referee. And there were um, at least, there was, certainly there was one penalty in the quarterfinals and possibly another one, which was actually clearly given by the goal line assistants. But, of course, um, we don't talk about that because we just have to go and make fun of them all the time. But Sorry, and, um, on, on Sunday... A goal line referee would have been perfect, as presumably he could have told Atkinson it hadn't gone in. But the the issue is the fourth official. I, I have no idea why the, why, the, why the fourth official can't just have a have a screen. They've all they all used to have screens in the dugouts anyway. Right. I think they took them away. But just watch it, and in okay, two this sessions, this is not where we debated. You go back, you listen to old game podcasts, you will find plenty of debate with Paddy Barkley on this very issue. But the very short. <laughs> well, answer, I am but a, a, a pale comparison of Paddy Barkley. You I do. Realize that, never. Um, but the, the the very short answer about why generally that's that's deemed unwieldy is that yeah you can have your monitor there but you can only see the replays that the producer uh, sends out and in a space of you know people say oh it's very quick yes if you get the right replay angle immediately and if it's something obvious uh, like it was but if it is something a little more subtle that's where that's been the argument thus far uh, against it uh, Tony did it actually change the game because we were talking about the, the, the flow of the match and obviously it was 1-0 and you know 1-0 2-0 is kind of different um, situation did you agree that you can't really say, oh, but look, Tottenham fans, stop complaining because Chelsea were four goals better than you? Yeah, I think that the fact that the final score was so emphatic would make people say, well, it was only one goal in five, but it was, it was the time of the goal, it was the way the goal came. That, that was what made it so important because in the first half, the spells when Tottenham were absolutely dominant and he was unlucky enough to score a couple himself. So, so when you can see that kind of way... It's obviously it's obviously a massive setback, but I actually thought that the defensive grievance spared Tottenham on, and I, I thought I thought they responded particularly well to that. But it's it, it's a massive problem, and I, I've always in the past I've I've, I've never been particularly in favour of, of goal line technology. I've never been in favour of, of any kind of technology in Tottenham football because I like the human element. And it, but I just think issues like this are now so controversial and. And football is so much money involved, and, and we, we we are in a position to find it one way or another. But it shouldn't be left up to to, to referees and their human failings. It should be down to the, the, the technology that we have that we that we can implement. And it's it's up to FIFA to do that. The FA has been asking for it for ten years now, and yet we're still waiting. On the subject of uh, uh, of referees and, and and the job they face, I was struck by something. And just as just as an aside, and anything, it's nothing to do with uh, Chelsea. Spurs, but I'll just chuck it in here now because I am presenting this podcast. Um, last Monday, I, uh, I I went to see Swindon Town play Northampton, um, and uh, as you do, not because I know the Swindon Town manager, but. Um, 
And the referee for that match was Stuart Atwell. You remember the guy who was fast-tracked into the Premier League, the next big thing, referee in the Premier League at 25, and then he was bad, supposedly, and well, he was bad, and, uh, and he was demoted. But what struck me was afterwards, speaking to some of the officials of both clubs, they both said, wow, this is fantastic. Like, he, did, he was so good, and he was really good. And I think you can actually clearly tell that some referees are just a lot better than others. And we need to get away from this idea of speaking about referees as if they were all one collective being. And what you do with, and, and I'm not saying Atwell should be back in the Premier League, but just at League Two, you know, it's a little bit like Wayne Rooney playing at League Two level. He is clearly better than all the other referees. At least that was the feedback I was getting. I, I'm just wondering what, what we do with Atkinson at the end of the season. I, I would imagine, and I hope that PGMO or whatever it's called actually do this. They sit there, they look at all the assessors uh, reports from the season. They say, all right, how many huge mistakes has he made? Um, what, what did the report say? And they they make some sort of ranking of referees. I'd love them for them to make it public. I think they should make it public, but of course they won't. But I think that's how we deal with it, rather than just simply saying Atkinson is, is, is a fool and an idiot forever for, getting, for making this enormous mistake. You know, in France, it's a really interesting point, because in France, every, every weekend, each referee is marked of 20 for his performance on, on the game, you know, on the pitch during mm-hmm. the game. So if he makes a mistake, if, he, if he's really good, if there's too many yellow cards, red right. cards, whatever. And at the end of the season, they do the average marks of each guy. And it's the, made public. Well, not really. sometimes yeah, that, that, that's what they do here. That's why they have assessors. But yeah, but sometimes they do because the the bottom two or three, I think, obviously go down. And uh, exactly like like for clubs, you know, they, they they've got promotions for referees to the to the top flight, and then some go down and go down and go down again. And 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 I think that's that's like you said, that's the way forward to make that public and and that exactly like we do with players, you do it with referees. Does, does that not raise the spectre of a referee in the last game of the season deliberately not giving out any yellow cards because <laughs> he doesn't want to get relegated? Maybe a fella in the in the second division just just sending everybody off just just to sort of boost his figures you don't get points for relegate for you get points for for correct decisions i presume not yeah. just points for handing out red and yellow cards I mean, sorry slightly, i apologize slightly facetious Barry, I, i'm sorry you had to hear that um but but staying with referees and and, and, and age old uh, issue uh, tottenham pulled it back to 2-1 when um when Gareth Bale scored. Um, but the dynamic was interesting because it was a through ball to Adebayor. Peter Cech comes out, basically takes him down. In the process of doing so, the ball runs on to Gareth Bale, who, who puts it away. So now Atkinson on this occasion um, you know, gave the goal, and I believe, according to the laws of the game, he was correct. He was under no obligation to send Peter Cech off or, or, or give a penalty. He played the advantage, and, and the advantage um, materialized. Um, but it did raise a debate. Okay, it was uh, what, early in the second half. Uh, would Spurs have been better off with a penalty and um, and, and, uh, and Chelsea down to ten men? Uh, Tony, is it a case that you know, maybe we should let teams decide what punishment um, they want to meet out to the opposition, or is actually the red card penalty and sending off, uh, sorry, red card and and, uh, and sending off is that just a bit too harsh to begin with? I just wouldn't put any decision making in the hands of teams because I mean, if you just one example of last week uh, when Yakuba was brought down by Brad Jones in the Blackburn Blackburn Liverpool game, uh, the penalties awarded uh, and someone put the ball in on that occasion. 
Blackburn could have easily decided that they would rather have the goal just simply because, well, there's no point sending Brad Jones off. He's not a particularly outstanding goalkeeper. If it could come down to those kind of issues. I, I, for me, it was an absolute bright decision. And that was, the, that was the way that football has always been. Whenever you play football as a kid, a man goes down, you go and get the ball until the decision's given. Deal with the ball, deal with the situation, put in the net, and let's see what the referee does. I just, I just think there's too much in football now that, that comes down to what the referee does and doesn't do. The players take the situation to their own hands. There's nothing better than scoring a goal. There's no guarantee you'll score a penalty. There's no guarantee that you'll take advantage of the penalty of being a man, having an extra man. So I just think you've got to put the ball in the net. And that is the most important thing in football and I hope we never lose lose face of that. I agree with Tony, I've got to say, Jim Bedlin on the ITV commentary said was asked by I think Clive Tilsley or Peter Drury whoever was doing the game uh, they're interchangeable I think the, it matters who asked yeah them. but they uh, the, would you rather have the goal or the the, the man sent off and the penalty and Bedlin said the goal I, I disagree I think it would have been better for Spurs to have the penalty which you probably score and the man sent off so with but the my benefit f- of hindsight are you suggesting that if Gareth Bale had simply kicked the ball into Rosette or, or, or if Bale leaves over it, it yeah. or, or, or left it then it would have gone back. That would have been the cynical and intelligent thing to do. My favourite bit, though, of the entire semi-final was John Terry appealing for offside against Gareth Bale because that offside decision would have got his goalkeeper sent off and given Spurs a penalty, which is particularly thick. That's brilliant. I, I completely missed that point. Final point, um, Julian. Um, Tottenham are in free fall. Now, I, I think um, a lot of people agree that Harry Redknapp is possibly the best option for England manager because he has to be English uh, at this point, and we won't we won't go well we won't go over the the, the, the freak show that is Alex Horn and, uh, and and the FA and their decision making process the way they handled it. But is it a bit worrying that now it's uh, what is it one in eleven um, something stupid like that? Yeah, one in nine, I think. Something. One in nine. I mean. Yeah, I mean, we last time we, I was with you on the podcast, we talked about it. There's a few things, obviously, that the, the collapse seems to start when it was the Harry for England thing. I think Harry's made a lot of mistakes uh, in the last three months, tactically, I mean. I think You're blaming Harry, you're not blaming the fact that Ledley King can't walk, that your buddy William Gallus is old, that these players are tired. No, no, of course, of course he counts. I think Rory made a very good point the other day. I think physically they're not ready. I mean, if you take last season, they're starting having bad results exactly at the same time in the season. And I know they were playing Champions League and you know and things like that, but physically and it's probably because of the training sessions we we said they don't work physically enough in our opinion you know to last the whole season especially with the game they play which is a very offensive game and with a lot of you know tempo and rhythm i think physically they're shattered i think harry is making a lot of mistakes tactically i think some of the players i mean galas just today you know come on there was just it was just nowhere good enough to play in that game he made so many mistakes almost every goal there's a mistake by Gala somewhere beyond the line so all of that I think explains why they're so poor at the moment all right, Tony Barrett's getting bored, so let's talk about the Merseyside derby, uh, red versus blue. Tony, I want to start with something which, I mean, I think su- surprised me a little bit when, when I saw uh, Doug Lee's lineup. Hey, why was Jose Enrique dropped? Is there any any story there? Is- now he was dropped. He's uh, Enrique since probably 
defend the time uh, has been shown signs of weakness. Uh, his form has dipped alarmingly. He was he looked at the start of the season. Uh, I think that Liverpool fan with Haven as as one of the signings of, of the summer. Since then, he's he deteriorated to a staggering ex- extent against Aston Villa and Anfield in the league game. Uh, he was appalling, to be honest with you. It, it wasn't a big shock that he was dropped. I think from I think probably the mistake that Kenny Dalglish was made was that he didn't take him out earlier. Let's talk some Everton because I, I thought that there was there was a big chunk of the game, Julian, when. It was working. I mean, yeah, it, it was in control. It's easier though to to be in control and to look organized when you don't play to attack. You don't play for, for most of the game. They play not to score. Basically, they play to defend their goal. Fair enough, but it's obviously easier to play organized and to look, you know, strong and and you know and, and in control when you one it up and you just have to sit back and wait. Because at the time Liverpool were not creating anything either. So that's I, I think that you know it was. It was a good some some part of the game were good from Everton. Just think they didn't create much at all. Even you know even when Liverpool leveled the score, I think they they still couldn't do much more with the ball than what they've done before. And I was really disappointed in that. I know Pina was missing, and it's obviously their most creative player. But I, I just thought when they look good, it's because they just had to 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 control the poor use of the ball made by Liverpool and not really go forward. Right. I'm, I'm... Okay, I, I'm I'm biased here. We reveal, reveal my bias because I'm a big fan of, of of David Moyes and also being Italian and kind of twisted. I get excited by well organized defensive formations, blah blah blah. But should we be more critical of Moyes and the inability to really go and, and take the game to the opposition, or even really be effective on think, the counterattack? Sometimes I think there's a there's a view. Of too conservative. I mean, I, I thought. What if you chuck Fellaini and Cahill forward a little bit more, at least on you know in, in certain situations? It gives Carragher, who's clearly struggling on the day, something more to, th- to think about. Um, you know, Skirtle's good, but he, the, nobody likes having the, 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 the giant Fellaini with the big hair, uh, you know, uh, uh, inside your jockstrap. I mean, it's a. Should he have done more of that? Yeah, I mean, I th- Tim Cahill's a slightly different issue. I think Everton have matured beyond the point where Tim Cahill is relevant to their play. I think, particularly on Saturday, Cahill what just wasn't involved. You could forget, you almost forgot that he was playing. He was an excellent player for Everton. I think their game now doesn't require him, particularly with Jelovic, they don't need him quite so much. There's a view amongst Everton fans that Moyes is too cautious on on big, in big games. They've, their record against, the, the, I guess, the top six is dreadful. And that, and they've won what four derbies in 23 against Liverpool. And there is a view amongst Everton fans, I don't know if it's right, that he's too cautious, too nervous. He won't attack. And that that was shown on Saturday. As Julian says they they were organised. I think the first half they didn't have to be, have to be particularly well organised. I don't think Liverpool did anything. But you you don't win trophies as a rule being defensive. You you can with particularly good teams, as Elenio Herrera would no doubt tell you. But if you if you're an average side and you play defensive football, you won't win. Tournaments, you might win games, but you won't win. You won't win trophies, and I think that's the problem. Nice Helenio Herrera uh, reference there. Of course, <laughs> probably also helped by the fact that he had uh, he had a guy named Sandro Mazzola, uh, Jacinto Facchetti, and of course the original Luis Suarez, the one who uh, who won the European the Ballon d'Or uh, and uh, won the European Championships. Um, certainly, the current Luis Suarez uh, will never do the latter, and uh, may never do the former. Yeah, but either. was the original ever involved in a race storm? No, so it's just went around about, isn't it? Really, you always have to bring up. <laughs> 
Flores and Ray. Seriously. Um, Tony, we... we, we, we uh, I hope you appreciate the fact that I left you out of the Everton part of the of the discussion. Is it still the case that when you touch something blue or discuss anything Everton related, uh, you break out in hives? <laughs> I break out in hives. Anyway, it doesn't leave Everton for that. But no, I I, I disagree with, with, with Rory. But I, I don't think Moyes is negative against the, the bigger clubs. I think you look at his record against Manchester City, it's very good. And Everton tend to take the game. To, to, they've had good wins against Chelsea over the last couple of years. I think where he does have a, a psychological flaw, it's when he plays Liverpool or Manchester United. Against Liverpool, he he just doesn't know how to take Liverpool on. He is very, very reluctant to do so. And that means that Liverpool have to play a poor and to lose. But, that, but this is a, a problem with, with Everton. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. But in that predates Moyes. I think you go back to 1931 to find a Merseyside derby in which Liverpool have equalised after you haven't then gone on to, to win. There seems to be some kind of problem in Everton's psychological makeup as a club that has consumed Moyes. He's become part of that problem, but I, I, I do think in general he's a more positive manager than he gets the credit for. I just think it is when he plays Liverpool, Manchester United and goes into his shell. All right, let's talk some Andy Carroll, um, because, of course, in the end, it was it was about him. Um, to me, this confirmed... I'm, I'm sort of in two minds about this, Julian, because to me, on the one hand, it confirms the fact that, you know, for all this, uh, for, for all the talk about, about technique and whatever, if you have a tall, athletic man um, and you can put a ball accurately into the box, you will always be a threat uh, against any kind of defender. Um, so that's that's good. Then again, Carroll obviously missed a chance. And I, I'm blown away by the fact that no player has ever moved for that, for that much money that young, no player in the history of the game. And it's clear to me that he was bought not for what he'd achieved by that point, but what he might possibly achieve in the future. He was bought along, if you will, scouting principles, not money ball principles, which is kind of uh, ironic uh, uh, given your buddy Kamali, but we'll get to him in a minute, I guess. But um, did this, does this mean anything to you, his performance? Is it just a glimpse of what he can do? Do you expect more? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was really good, to be fair. I've always been a big fan, I have to say. I think he's, I really do believe he's got something special. Um, the way he flicked the ball, the way he can hold the ball, even his passes. I mean, in the second half, at some point, he was in his own 30 yards. He got the ball and passed it right on the left, on the right, sorry, with his left foot just after the ball bounced on the floor. It was just a perfect pass from like, you know, 20 yards, 25 yard pass on the right hand side. It was just brilliant. I think he's got something special. I think he lacks confidence. You could see with the sitter he missed early in 
the second half, the header, because he had far too much time to think about it. When the ball came from down in cross, he had far too much time and he missed it. The goal he scored, there was no time for him because the ball went so quick, he jumped and scored the goal. And I think once he got that confidence back, which could be this end of the season, which would be perfect for next season, then you will see the, exactly what he can do. But I think he was really promising. Uh, Tony, um, what, what strikes me though is in terms of sort of big target, man, and uh, I want to get Rory on this as well. I was looking around Europe and how many teams ha- play with one guy up who's sort of big and, 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 and strong, and there really aren't very many among the top teams. Uh, you, you know, you could ar- argue that Arsenal with Van Persie and Inter Milan with, with Slatan Ibrahimovic have big, tall, strong strikers, but of course both are extremely skillful, unselfish players who you know kind of play as a centre forward, but um, probably could play anywhere else on the pitch. Bayern Munich obviously have that in Mario Gomez, but clearly he's an extremely clinical player. But there really aren't too many others. Maybe uh, Teddy Bilbao with Llorente, yeah, yeah. uh, the other one. But we're also talking about you know basically a mid-table team in Spain. Um, is there some concern that, uh, on your part that you know Liverpool kind of put too many eggs in the Carroll basket? Yeah, well, I think they did because it, it then they take away transfer policy. They, they then decide they have to sign Stuart Dan to be a, a conventional winger. That we basically trying to recreate what he had at Blackburn with everyone so called Alan Shearer. But I think uh, the, the more likely reference point for Andy Carroll, Chris Sutton, he's the, he's the target man. He's, he's not particularly mobile. Uh, and and down with, with the Jason Wilcox, and that's what Faggy should try to recreate. That, that's why the, the value is this is true, or is this just sub? Because I mean, because no, this what you're telling me is so stupid. I mean, just so demented. I mean, not not that's your opinion, because I, I've heard ex-pros say this. I, I've heard people I don't rate say that this was really Douglas's thinking. I refuse to believe that the guy sits there, that Douglas actually sat there and said, "Oh, look." You know, a Wilcox. Oh, look, Jason Wilcox, Stuart Downing. You know, l- let me disassemble everything just for this. Is, is it that you? I mean, you're, you're very solid on this. This is how the man's no, mind I th- works. I think, you, I think you take the names away and you, you go for the types. I don't think he's saying I want a new Jason Wilcox. I think he's saying I want a player of that type. If, if you go back to his first big sign at Liverpool, John Aldridge, who was a target man, albeit a, a goal scorer, and on the left he signed John Barnes, and that that has been that has gone through his career. He's he's always played with wingers, and he's always liked to have a target man, a, a header of the ball in the penalty area. That's something he's had. The problem he's had this year is that the winger he signed to provide the, the, the quality service in the plant for Stuart Town and he has been painfully short with implied standards on Saturday he put a cross in the back post Carroll missed I think he missed out of shock that a ball had actually landed on his head because more often than not <laughs> Diamond's cross has hit defenders shins that's what he does I, I wonder I wonder Julian if it's an issue of football strategy and maybe Liverpool needed a director of, of football strategy all this time yeah probably yeah yeah I, I think they should have thought about that the reference for those long time ago, that, obviously. That was Damien Kamali's uh, uh, title. Um, Kamali, of course, leaving the club in uh, in midweek. Um, Julian, for the simple reason that you and Kamali are both friends, we assume that you've got some some startling <laughs> insight into his mindset. Um, I think we can take it as read that. Uh, he lost his job because uh, he, he was, I think it's pretty obvious, yeah. uh, despite what some of the uh, official Liverpool statements have said. But. Um, does he feel that he was given do you think he feels he was given a, a fair crack of the whip he, he absolutely hates my newspaper so he's never 
taken any of my calls or replied to my texts or anything. So I, I, I don't have his version of, of what, what happened or what went wrong. Uh, I, I, just, I just think he was made a scapegoat uh, for, for some of Liverpool's problems this season. And probably that was fair enough. I, I think he made some, some mistakes. I, I, don't think he's, he's, I don't think he's a director of football anyway, to, be, to, to start with. He's a director of football strategy. I'm not even sure is that. I think it might be good maybe to, um, you know, to to discover some young good players. And even that, I'm not really sure. I mean, he went to Saint Etienne. He was a disaster. At Tottenham, I'm not sure he did that good. You know, at Arsenal, he, he took credit for players that he didn't sign. He signed some of them, like Clichy, for example. But he, he he took credit or tried to take credit for other players that he, he didn't. He signed David Grandin, right? Yeah, but even, yeah, for example, as well. Even Clichy was a French under 18 international. That's not. Yeah, but he was still playing in third division. And to be fair, he, to, no, to be fair, he found him first. I have to say, it's probably the only one where he actually did a good job from start to finish. Okay, no more cliche because, of course, he has a girl's name. Um, Tony, it only seems uh, uh, appropriate that uh, you get the final word, a word on this uh, Komali Douglas uh, business. And uh, in your considered answer, I'd like you to cover uh, whether or not Douglas will still be the manager next season, and whether uh, there will be a director of football at Liverpool. Yes, or both, unless something ridiculously dramatic happens at the end of the season, Dagley should still be in charge. Uh, and the club uh, have made it clear they want a director of football, but it's equally important that Dagley wants one himself. That's something which, obviously, there's always conspiracy theories when anyone loses a job at a high-profile club, and, and the one and Damien Camoli that he wasn't wanted by Kenny Daglish. Now, I don't think Kenny Daglish, if he was, was asked to go out and pick his own director of football, would have picked Damien Camoli. But the actual model is one he likes. He doesn't like to have to do the paperwork. He doesn't like to have to aim scouting. That, that is something which has always been done for him. At Liverpool, when he first became manager, Peter Robinson was in charge of that and there's people down the club like Jeff Twentyman who would organise the scouting so he, he, he thrives on, on not having to do that kind of role but his position's in, in no danger at the moment there were suggestions that Camoli go and meant that Dagrish was now under threat he was under pressure there's, there's no question about that but the, the pressure was mainly what happens if they lose the FA Cup semi-final against Everton where does that leave him but they won that game and, and that does change the dynamic quite a lot but let's move on to uh, to another trophy, um, the big one, uh, Champions League. It's uh, Chelsea and Barcelona this week, and Bayern and Real Madrid. Um, after Barcelona knocked out uh, AC Milan, the desk asked me to write a little piece about uh, how what Chelsea could exploit, how they could go about what their game plan might be to um, to knock out uh, Barcelona. And, I don't know, maybe I live in La La Land or maybe I saw Barcelona this weekend. They weren't particularly good uh, at all against uh, Levante. Um, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. Um, so before I throw this out there, is there anybody who thinks that it is a foregone conclusion, that Chelsea aren't just the worst semifinalists, but Barcelona have a 90% chance of, or above of knocking them out? I think Chelsea are the worst semifinalists, but I, I think they can, they, they can knock Barcelona out. It's not impossible. How? How? What would you do if you were Robbie D? I if think you were Eddie Newton, actually, because that's probably more realistic. <laughs> what, what would you? What would you? Uh, uh, what would your basic principles be? Uh, defend, hang on, play long on the counter. Would you defend deep or high up the pitch? I would press them relatively high. I'd actually do what Barcelona do to, to their opponents. You press initially very high, and then if, if you don't let the ball back, you drop deep. 
Yeah. All right. That's I that that the that does kind of set you up a possibility of the early ball um, and and the prospect of Messi and or Alexis but, chances uh, running past John Terry. Alexis while he is the problem. Hands up. But Barca don't like to play the early ball. That was the problem at Levante that they 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 had so much possession on the edge of the box, but they they. I don't know whether they do it deliberately because they're trying to wait for the perfect the perfect moment to play the pass, but they don't play the early ball. Um, uh, Julian, one thing that, that I, I made the point of, and it seems kind of obvious to me, Barcelona have two players in their starting eleven who are who are taller than uh, um, than six foot um, plus Puyol, who's okay and he was pretty good in the air, but you know he's he is small and, and he's thirty four and he is injured. And Chelsea have a lot of big players who are. Uh, who are good in the air, Ivanovic and Terry and you know Gary Cahill or David Luiz, whichever one whichever one starts. In light of all this, and I know Fernando Torres has a great goal scoring record against Barcelona, dating back to Atletico, but I didn't really believe in that kind of thing. Might you be tempted to uh, to to play Drogba and just unleash big people against the Smurfs and uh, go all Definitely. route one? Definitely, I think you should start the same team as yesterday. I mean, Luiz probably will miss the game, so then you. Either you put Ivanovic in the center, Bosingua, part of Ferrara on the right, or Ivanovic on the right, Cahill, if he can play again in the center. I think the idea is, is, is that lineup. I, I even think that I would put Michael Essien in midfield somewhere. Unleash just, the beast that is exactly, Essien, the just, whole freaking. You're getting excited. But because, yeah, but be, just to kick them, no, not to kick them around, but to put that physical impact that he can. I know he's not the Michael Essien of, of 2009, obviously, when he had a great game against them at Stamford Bridge. But on nine, you know, 90 minutes, or at least part of the game, he can cause them big trouble because he's so physical and they would hate that completely. But I think, yeah, Drogba for sure, I think it would be a massive mistake not to start with Drogba up front, especially with the form he is now. Tony, the, 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 the conventional wisdom is that, in theory propagated by myself and others at the start of the season, that, oh, look, you know, Barcelona and Real Madrid are far and away the two best teams in the world, but Bayern Munich, you know, they could be the dark horse, the finals at home, they've got the individuals and Robin and Ribery and, and then, you know, Manuel Neuer, who nearly carried Schalke into the final last year, but uh, to the semifinals. But um, I look at this now and I'm thinking, like, and I watch a lot of Bundesliga for my sins, these guys just aren't. Good. I mean, Badge Duber and, uh, and Jerome Boateng in central defense. I mean, they had people, people sort of crying out and like sort of sad that Daniel van Buyten got himself uh, hurt. Um, Schweinsteiger's come back from an injury and he's kind of all over the place. Uh, hasn't been himself. Uh, are we kidding ourselves also about Bayern's chances against uh, um, Real Madrid, considering also that Bayern pretty much abdicated the title this past weekend? Well, somebody took the 12 to 1 on Bayern Munich at the start of the season. I'm hoping I'm, I'm not kidding myself to be. Now, you're spot on, Gabby. They have a lot of weaknesses. I watched the game against Dortmund last week, and, and I thought Dortmund were, were comfortably better. Uh, but I, I just think when, when it comes to these games, there's, there's certain teams who, who have a, a knack of being in the final, who have a knack of winning games they shouldn't do. It's, Bayern Munich had that history, and with this game, being the precursor to a potential final at home. I've, I've just got a funny feeling about it. I don't think Real Madrid are a perfect team. I think that they're, they're a very, very good, very functional team with Cristiano Ronaldo, who takes them on to another le- level entirely. If Bayern Munich can find a way of, of stopping Ronaldo, and that's very difficult, seeing as he takes 
exercise three kicks from 35 yards that's 10 to find the top corner if they can find a way of stopping him I think them have been stuttered lately I've watched a lot of their games and, and they don't seem to be in the kind of form that they were in probably three, four months ago maybe that's close because they're now close to the finishing line in the league and they're getting a little bit tense they might be totally different in Europe but I just think that there's certain signs there that, that Bayern can ex- exploit and I, I think aerially, particularly, look, we could set pieces, uh, and, and I think Bayern can exploit that. I think the, the, the what what Real's form in the lead particularly shows is that, as you say about Barcelona, it takes a little time for them to get into the rhythm. Real play when they're a doll behind, and with someone like Mario Gomez, who sort of stands on the penalty area, just sweeping balls into the corners of goals, then if Bayern score early and they can hold on, I think they've, they've, they do have a chance to, as Tony says, to sort of take a lead to Madrid and. 1-0 up, say, from, from the first leg, it, it, it could happen. No uh, Julian's shaking his head no for chance. those who can't see him. No chance for Bayern Munich. No, I, I, And I think they haven't been tested this year in the Champions League. That's why we. That's why they're, they're where they are, and that's why people think they, they have a right, chance. Right, sorry, but, but Bayern Munich haven't been tested in the Champions League this year? Well, I mean, especially, no, I mean, the knockout stages. Basel, Marseille, uh, you know. That's true. You know, it's, it's, and, I, and I think it's the first time they will face, like, you know, in those massive games, a real team. And I think, I mean, I, like like Tony, I watched the, the Dortmund game, and I thought they were so poor. And someone like Ribéry is so poor at the moment, especially in big games. He's just never there. And, and, and I, I cannot see how they can beat Real Madrid over two legs. Impossible. Mm. If I can throw my my, uh, my two cents here, if Chris, the producer, will allow me. Um, I, I just think that the, um, yeah, Real Madrid are a better team. If they play this game ten times, I think it would be undoubtedly Real Madrid. The only thing I would I would warn against is that you know, individuals on their day, um, Bayern have a lot of those. And if Neuer, who, who really had some horrible, horrible games this season, but he's also had some very good ones, if he shows up and plays the way he did, he did last year, then uh, I think Bayern are in with a shout. Okay, how about some quick hits? Manchester United pummel Aston Villa 4-0, but Ashley Young makes headlines once again for the wrong reasons as he appeared to dive to win a penalty and poor, poor Kieran Clark was the victim. Uh, Rory, uh, having followed you on Twitter, something tells me that you're not ready to join the universal condemnation of these vile cheats. Yeah, I... I Contrary to everybody else, don't really have a problem with diving. Ashley Young looked for the contact, which and, it, and got it. It was a penalty. He then exaggerated the fall. I think he probably should have been booked for a ridiculous dive. I see diving and that sort of deception as being part of the game. I think all the top players play the game and they play the ref, and they do what they can to win. It's it's unseemly, but it is part of football. And if you're good at it, it should be admired. I am appalled. Also, I would like to remind everybody that um, I believe the laws of the game say that uh, it's a foul if you trip or attempt to trip an opponent. Uh, Kieran Clark didn't do that. There's nothing in there about contact. And I think referees would do well to remember that. I think too often we get obsessed with, like, oh, there's contact, must be a foul. Uh, that's not the case. Carlos Tevez nails a hat-trick as City roll over North 6-1. Tony, if you could strap Mancini into a lie detector, uh, do you think he'd tell you that he regrets the hardline stance towards Tevez earlier this season? Or do you think, all told, that it would have made much of a difference? No, I think he would. And I think Manchester City certainly would have handled that as 
is an object lesson in, in how not to deal with these kind of situations. Just simply because this was Manchester City's big, big chance to win the league title. And I, I think you've got to put up with things. You've got to man-manage situations. You've got big players with big egos who will time to time do stupid things, things that will find the bottom. But you're the manager, you manage that. And the base of Mancini, I think it was dereliction of duty. I, I think he failed to manage that. His duty is to get Tedders back into the team, get him scoring goals, especially when the option was Mario Balotelli. Uh, I think he, I think he let Manchester City down. I think it's costing a big, big chance to win the league title. That's your opinion, and you're entitled to it. <laughs> Arsene Wenger has called for automatic bans for players caught diving. Julian, I guess it would be rude for me to point out Arsenal's hysterical hissy fit reaction to the Eduardo ban a few years ago. Well, I guess we've all forgotten that. But doesn't it kind of though, prove uh, prove a point um, that in some cases it's extremely hard to determine 100 percent when somebody has cheated, especially since you can't really read their mind? Yeah, no, maybe. But and you know, even if it's just 80 percent, you know that it's a dive. I, I mean, Ashley Young, he looks 100 percent anyway. I mean. Wenger with Eduardo or Fergie yesterday with Ashley Young would never say that their own players had dived, obviously. Why? Well, because... Julier would, would go out and blame his player, right? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah especially Ginola, probably yeah. the only one. But, no, I think I think Wenger is right. I think he should be a three-match ban. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't agree with Rory. But, yeah, I think he should be an automatic ban this for people who die. This is an open democracy, Julian. I may not agree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. That's right. And as Rory was telling me earlier, uh, when we went to, to the uh, um, corner shop before, uh, shoplifting is a form of liberation as well, right? Uh, amazingly, my moral code is sufficiently complex, Gab, that what I apply to sport, I don't necessarily apply to life. Mm-hmm. And Gab, one for you. Uh, Italian football was rocked by the sudden death of, of midfielder Pierre Mario Morosini this weekend. Uh, I have read your column. It's very good. Uh, please tell me more about the, about the tragic events. Um, this is just one of those uh, uh, sad situations where... You know, you, you try to find answers, and there'll be, there'll be an autopsy. But uh, Pier Mario Morosini collapsed uh, about half an hour into uh, into a game. He was a midfielder for for Livorno, um, and his heart just uh, just basically stopped beating. And um, the it's one of those it's one of those things where it's a, it's a very it's, it's a very sad story because. Uh, uh, of his family background as well, uh, being orphaned, uh, both parents by the time he was 18, his brother committing uh, suicide, his uh, his elder sister who is uh, severely differently abled um, and is in care, uh, she's now left on her own, although it looks as if uh, Udinese, uh, they not have, but their foundation has sort of pledged to take care of her. Um, but that's one of those things that uh, leaves you wondering why and if there is a small glimmer of light uh, it is maybe that his former teammate Roberto Barano tweeted um, at least he's going to be with his loved ones Testing in Italian football is, is even more extensive than it is in, in English football it's every six months they, they go through a battery of tests and in your column this morning you quote the doctor who treated Carnu and detected a previously undetected heart condition but do you think that these tragedies will happen they, they, they will happen every so often for they're essentially inexplicable but they are freak accidents occur I, I, I think that's exactly it I think um, the I mean, statistically, it feels like there's been a lot because recently we've had Mwamba uh, in Italy was also a volleyball player who it happened to and but when you look at the sheer number of people who are playing professional sport, um, it's, it's certainly within the, the statistical mean. Uh, and I think, you know, with testing, uh, yeah, the, the, the guy quoted uh, Bruno Carew made the point that you could always do more tests, and some of these tests are, are, are 
more and more invasive. Um, but in every time you do that, you know, you lose something. And we have to accept at some point that you know, there is a limit to there's a limit to science. Uh, Lillian Turam played for uh, you know what 18 years at the yeah. highest level, 20 years at the highest level, um, and he underwent every test known to man. And then at the very end, you know, moves to Paris Saint Germain, wants to play one more year, and say like, oh no, look, you know, you've got a heart defect. Did it develop the day before he stepped in to take that medical? Who knows? At some point, maybe, you know, you have to have a, a sense of, uh, of, of fatalism about this. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can go to thetimes.co.uk. You'll find your news, your gossip, your analysis, your web chats. Uh, uh, If you're listening to this, you probably will have missed Rory's web chat for this week. No big loss, but you can catch him next Monday, of course. Uh, My web chat is on Tuesday. Uh, All of us are on Twitter, so uh, you can follow us there as well. Until next time, bye-bye. Times are back with another night of comedy at the iconic Wilton's Music Hall in London on the 19th of April. The brilliant lineup of comic talent includes Nick Helm, William Andrews, David Armand, and Andrew Maxwell, all compared by our resident MC, Jared Christmas. Tickets are £10 for Times Plus members and £15 for non members, and can be bought at timesTickets.co.uk or by calling 0871 620 4025. Comedy from the Times at Wilton's Music Hall. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.